Hello, college football fans. Welcome to episode 139 of College Football Throwdown. I'm your co-host, Alex Schmitz, and today I'm joined again by my dad, Peter Schmitz. Hello, college football fans and Husker fans. Hello, everybody. Uh, I am coming to you from uh, San Diego, California today in Uncle AJ's camper. So a bit of a different uh, locale for me. And I am talking to you from way over on the other coast, on the East Coast in Georgia, uh, right outside of Savannah. Nice. Very cool. Yeah, I'm here with your brother, a dad to uh, watch some of the races at Del Mar and enjoy Thanksgiving with family. So that's been good so far. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we are enjoying our time here, up and heading to our next destination, uh, which is a little even further south in Georgia tomorrow uh, morning. So we keep on uh, trucking in our trek down the East Coast. All right. Very cool. Um, so we are here to talk about the national world of college football, as well as, of course, our favorite team, the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Uh, so we'll be diving into the game against Wisconsin first thing before getting to the big games as we talk about the final weekend of the regular season of college football. Crazy that we're already here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, but for Nebraska fans, it's you know been a long season, right? So <laughs> yes. um, not that I'm hoping for college football to be over, but I sure am hoping for this whole chaos of not having a coach to be over sooner rather than later. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Uh, so we're going to stick with our tradition here and open up a cold beverage. Uh, I brought some of my uh, Longboard Island Lagers from Kona Brewing Company here to uh, AJ's place. Oh, are you going to let him have one? Well, of course, that's the idea. <laughs> good deal uh well we're we've uh discovered a year called land shark that's uh kind of an americanized version maybe of a corona really tastes wonderful with a nice fresh slice of lime uh i was just drinking that a little bit earlier tonight at a at a at a local uh, establishment where we were able to enjoy some uh, local and fresh seafood and it was wonderful uh, uh during their happy hour festivities very cool. All right. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Here we go. All right. Okay. So to dive into things, uh, obviously we had that big Wisconsin game. It was senior day uh, at Nebraska. Um, so a lot of goodbyes and things like that. And it was a cold, chilly day as well. Windy, um, which played an effect in the game. And we gave our usual predictions on the previous podcast. Um, I predicted that we would lose um, 21 to 13, while you predicted a more lopsided uh, 38 to 10. Uh, and once again, Alex's more optimistic loss uh, ended up being true uh, because we ended up losing yes. uh, 14 to 15 in a game that we frankly should have won. Correct. And, you know, Alex, I, I love your optimism. And, and I have to just say, you know, I, I'm ashamed of myself that I'm not giving uh, Coach Bush and the defense enough credit. I mean, throughout this season, while our offense has been at times completely inept and at other times just moderately so, you know, that defense has played hard and relatively disciplined football throughout the whole period of time since um, uh, Coach Bush took over. Um, 
And so, I, you know, I get that they basically are vulnerable to any power team that just wants to line up and smash us in the mouth because we do not have the horses up front to, to seem seemingly be able to stop that. So whenever a team decides, okay, we're done trying to get fancy here, we're just going to line up and smash Nebraska, they, they seem to be able to do that, right? But but up until that point, when they're playing base uh, defense in, uh, you know, against a first offense, uh, they seem to do pretty darn well. Uh, so I got to give my hat, my hats off to Coach Bush and the defensive players for giving great effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with that. You know, especially compared to the very beginning of the year, right, where it was a bit the opposite, where our offense was clicking a bit more with Casey Thompson at the wheel, but the defense was just playing so badly and giving up so much. Um, so Bill Bush did a good job to, uh, you know, simplify certain things and get those players uh, more reps and more focused. Um, so we've been able to stay in some of these games. Yeah, and, and he made some he made some personnel changes. There's some guys uh, that are playing a lot more snaps now that weren't playing so many snaps prior to uh, Bill Bush uh, being named uh, coordinator, and those personnel changes have also uh, enhanced our uh, our defense's ability as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and this was a game where. Uh, Frankly, they made more mistakes than we did uh, in terms of the fact that, like, uh, they missed a uh, field goal at one point. Um, Yeah. And also, you know, there was that critical moment where where we were in the near the end zone um, and there was a uh, ineligible receiver penalty and they chose to decline it just to get us to third down. Uh, But we ended up scoring on that third down. So they might have been better, right. you know, to take the five yards, right? You know, and push us further back. Right. And and in that and in that play, the guy was wide open, literally just standing in the end zone waiting for the ball because they had a they had a defensive mess up, and two players went with one receiver, and the other receiver was left alone. Yep. And also, if you look at. Um, penalties they had five for 50 well we only had two for 15 and we had uh zero turnovers um well they had one the one interception which was a critical uh interception for us that led to us getting one of our other touchdowns um so when you look at it that that way you know this was not the you know well-oiled machine type of wisconsin teams we've played before you know their star player braylon allen um was clearly uh dealing with an injury and so he would play for like you know one down or two and then have to go to the sideline because his shoulder was getting tweaked and stuff like that so uh it was one where we really should have won i totally agree yep and that's and uh we should have won it uh, but it's just it continues a long string. Uh, how many times have we said that over the last few years of games that w- when we look back at it, there were so many opportunities, so many windows for us to make the right decision. And sometimes it was bad decisions by players, not not filling a gap properly, being, you know, just bonehead in the wrong place at the wrong time or a bonehead fumble on offense or or interception, which didn't have to happen. You know, it would have been way easier for them to do the simple thing and throw it out of bounds or whatever. And in this case, uh, it was one of those deals where you you knew that at some point, if things got tight, uh, that Wisconsin was going to go back to their roots, go back to what they know, 
and that is just pounding the rock and driving it down our throats. And they eventually got there, right? Uh, they were trying to be balanced and, and do offer their whole offensive scheme. But at some point, they just made the decision, we're going to line up and smash them and been able to stop that for the most part. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't throw again, but they only threw kind of when they had to and with some you know, simple uh, uh, play action uh, passes and things of that nature. Um, and they were able to move the chains and eventually just wore us out. Okay. But that, that was helped by a huge blunder by our interim coach who, uh, you know, showed his lack of experience as a head coach, um, either in his own decision-making or in the structure that he has in place with his assistants. You know, I mean, that's a very, it's a very important part of coaching is what is your game day setup and who's responsible for what. And when, when it comes to making decisions about things like coin flips and, you know, which side do you take and that sort of stuff in Nebraska, that's a big deal because of the wind. It's a big, big deal. Okay. And he made a huge blunder at the beginning of the third quarter when he chose to take the wind in the third quarter, even though we were kicking off. Okay. And, and I know if you ask him, he would tell you, well, I did that so that we would have the advantage in the third quarter because it's so important for us to get a good start into that second half. But when you're kicking the ball off, you're only going to have, for sure, one guaranteed possession, maybe two or three, depending on how many times you go back and forth. But you, you want the wind in that fourth quarter, the critical fourth quarter. And he didn't do that. And I don't know why, but that was a huge coaching blunder by uh, Mickey Joseph, right. and it came back to bite us. Right. Uh, another interesting storyline in this game was, of course, uh, the quarterback play, because on the previous podcast, we talked about how uh, Casey Thompson uh, was practicing again and seemed like he might be in the game, but we weren't sure at the time, and we were kind of debating whether that was smarter to do or maybe just to commit to Logan Smothers, you know, as soon as you know that Cheba is unavailable and things like that. But Casey came out and he played uh, pretty well, I would say, you know, um, he was uh, 12 of 20 in terms of passes for 106 yards of passing. Um, and he ran it uh, quite a number of times as well. Um, so, I think choosing to play Casey over Logan, you clearly saw the difference in our general offensive performance and that we were actually able to get some drives going. Uh, but the key to me is that when the defense got a stop on Wisconsin late in the fourth quarter, while we were still in the lead uh, and Wisconsin needed a touchdown to win, not just a field goal. Um, and we got the ball back and all we needed to do was get a couple first downs to run out the clock, right? Making them use up their timeouts and instead, we go three and out. We give them the ball back with, like, I think it was 3.11 left in the clock and, like, most of their timeouts. So they had plenty of time to stick to what they're good at, run the ball, run the ball. And then they surprised us with a kind of a longer passing play that they got, you know, and they were able to close out the game at the end. So that that's the real frustration to me. Right. And and that uh, after those that three downs and out, you know, you, you were kind of backed up. And so you end up, you end up punting the ball and they get the thing, you know, at almost midfield. Right. Um, now, um, I, the punt was okay, but then they got a return of 10 or 12 yards that got them, you know, up into the, you know, 
45 plus uh, down marker. So that's unacceptable, right? I mean, you, you've just got to do a better job. If you want to win the football game, you've got to do a better job. But we put ourselves in a position uh, where we were like th- third down and 18, right? We, we had had two negative plays. We had had a, a, like a, a running play where I think we lost two yards on a rushing play. Then we called a pass on second down and got sacked uh, because they came in literally. I mean, I don't, I, I, you know, I don't remember the specifics of whether they blitzed or not, but the bottom line was uh, Casey Thompson didn't have a prayer. I mean, there were guys in his face pretty much immediately, and he just had to, you know, protect the ball and 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 take the hit, which he did, and that was another six yards. So now all of a sudden you're third and eighteen, and you know, and instead of uh, thinking, okay, we've kind of messed this up now, uh, we need to try to get a first down here, or at the very minimum, we need to save as much clock as possible, because in all likelihood, knowing what was about to happen, we need time on the clock for when we get the ball back after they score. But what do we do? We run a, a, a basic draw play that gets like four yards and burns, you know, 45 seconds of clock. Uh, when at that point, I would have rather us be saving time knowing that they were likely to score, frankly. Uh, I think that was just a stupid third and 18 to run the football. That was just stupid. That was, that was a loser mentality, in my opinion. Right. Yep. So, you know, sadly, another kind of frustrating loss, you know, and we were kind of expecting this one to be a loss. Obviously, you said it was going to be, what, uh, 38 to 10 or whatever. Blowout. Yeah. So the fact that we played them close, you know, showed that our defense, you know, can slow down this Wisconsin team, you know, and that they weren't, you know, uh, playing their best and all that stuff. You know, on the one hand, you can take some pride in that, that we didn't get blown out. But at the same time, it's almost more frustrating to lose by one point, right? Absolutely. Well, and and, and they weren't their complete team because uh, Brandon Allen is very important to them. And he was not himself at all. Like you said, he he could basically play a a down or two, and then he had to go off to say he he has a pinched nerve in his neck. I've had one myself back when I played football. And I'm telling you what, man, when you have that injury and, and you could just tell by the way he was holding his arm, the entire side of his, his arm and everything is just numb. And once that happens, you, you are not able to play until that numbness goes away, until that pinched nerve irritation subsides. And then you can go back. You don't even feel it. It's fine. Everything's fine until you get hit again. And then and, and, and pretty much every time he hit the ground the thing was happening, right? So he's got a pretty severe pinched nerve. I, I, I wonder how much he'll be able to play this week for them uh, against Minnesota. Yep, that'll definitely be a factor. And now, of course, Nebraska has to play against Iowa for the final game of the year, which is an away game, and it's against the Iowa team that beat Wisconsin pretty solidly uh, the week before. So <laughs> not looking good yep. for our uh, record. Well, I, I don't care about the record, but now we're in a spot where, okay, Iowa and Purdue uh, um, are the two uh, leading candidates to win the Big Ten West. It's just incredible that that's true, but that's what it is. And so, you know, uh, we can be spoilers. And I think it sounds like from listening to Mickey Joseph's press conference on Tuesday this morning, um, it sounds to me like he... That's the message he carried to the team. The, the team has embraced it. 
And so I'm hoping that, like Mickey has said before, he's been able to keep these guys engaged. I mean, it, this thing so easily could have went completely south where the guys stopped trying, and they haven't. You know, they have stayed in it. Uh, now, we're not very talented, especially along the offensive and defensive line, but we have stayed playing hard. Mm-hmm. And I got to credit the staff for, for being able to get that to happen. Yep. No, that's definitely true. You know, I mean, we, I think, you know, I don't know uh, if you did a whole poll of the state of Nebraska or whatever, but I think a majority of uh, Nebraska football fans would say they'd be happy for Mickey Joseph to stay on the staff, just not as the head coach, but in some other capacity, because he's done enough to show that he has some talent and really cares about the players and the program and things of that nature. Right. He, he, He's just inexperienced in in the role of head coach. It just it's just so very different than being an assistant, you know. Where you, you really need to re, you need to trust and rely on all your assistants to get the individual groups together and to have their stuff, you know, together. Uh, as a head coach, your focus, especially if you're not the offensive coordinator or the defensive coordinator as well, then your job is to have the pulse of the team and to be understanding the game management and the circumstances that you want, okay? And that's where Mickey has very little experience. And he's done some good things at times, uh, but he's also done some bad things. And uh, that's to be expected for somebody who's doing that for the first time. But, you know, everybody has, you know, thrown him under the bus in terms of the head coaching job. And, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with the head coaching job. uh, it's, It's pretty apparent that that's very dynamic, that there are some people that have been maybe involved in the conversation that have either backed away or are wanting to wait and see what other job opportunities become available because you have stupid crap going on, like what's going on at Texas A&M as well as the obvious Auburn job. Um, But um, uh, bottom line is we just need a coach who understands how to do basic football and, and can get us to a point where we're disciplined. And I think Mickey, given the opportunity to hire his own staff, might very well be able to do that. So if it fell to Mickey, I would be okay with that. I would be okay to say, I'm going to support him and and we're going to see how this goes. Would that be the hire I want? Absolutely not. I'm hoping we get somebody with much, much greater experience than Mickey at, at the role yeah. of head coach. But if it happened, I'm not crushed. Uh I mean, I don't know if I'd be crushed, but I would definitely be disappointed because that would mm-hmm. show that Trev Albers, with all of this time, you know, he fired Scott Frost after the third game, right, uh, wasn't able to find, you know, a, a bigger name head coach and we kind of had to fall back to our, you know, interim guy who's done okay, you know, but not not really impressed anybody in terms of the turnaround or whatever. So that'd be a pretty uh, sad sight, honestly. Oh, oh, it, it would be, but, but I can see it unfolding uh, simply because uh, of the fact that you've got a, you've got a job that in this new era is unattractive to a lot of people because they actually have to work really hard at recruiting. Okay. Nebraska has everything except athletes in their backyard. If it wasn't for the fact that we don't have athletes and population nearby, we would be one of the most desirable jobs in the country because we have potentially the top facilities in the Big Ten by this fall. We have 
um, uh, a fan base that has been loyal and passionate, uh, selling out a stadium, even though we are going to have back-to-back three-win seasons. Um, and we have an NIL presence that is at least competitive with most other schools in the country in terms of our commitment of our things like that. So with all those things in place, there's no reason we can't be successful with the exception of one thing. We need a staff uh, and a head coach who understand how to identify talent and recruit talent coast to coast nationally because we do not have enough talent in our immediate area to put together you know, a competitive football team. Right. Well, and hopefully uh, on the next week's podcast, which will be after the Iowa game, of course, um, we're hoping that by then we will have our announcement of what our new uh, coach will be. But to your point from last podcast, we could have that, or we could be waiting even longer with the uh, fan base scratching at the walls and ready to burn down all the cornfields in anticipation. <laughs> Exactly. Well, it's crazy. There is literally new names being thrown out by the media, by the, you know, they're, they've got all kinds of time to fill because they, they really can't talk about the game and the football team because there's nothing positive to say. So what do you talk about? You talk about speculation because that's, that's what's interesting. That's what gets clicks. That's what gets ears and eyeballs to, to TV shows and radio stations, right? So uh, that's what they're doing. And, and no one knows anything. Uh, Trev has done a fabulous job of keeping this tight-lipped. And as a result, I mean, the speculations are just going crazy. Whether it's national guys or local guys, they're all just throwing shit against the wall. And it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, but bottom line is, I would say, you know, eight out of every ten guys that I'm hearing mentioned, if any of those eight out of those ten get the job, I think we're going to be fine. I think we're going to have a, a guy who's capable. Then it's all up to them. I mean, keep in mind, none of this stuff is guaranteed. You can get the home run higher like Texas A&M did a few years ago and pay the most premium of premium prices to get it, and and you still have a disaster on your hands. It's nothing is guaranteed. Things are changing way too fast, okay, and there, there's just nothing that's guaranteed. I mean, maybe Urban Meyer you could say was a guy that if you got him, you could pretty much be assured that you were going to be able to put, he was, he would be able to put together a a very good experienced staff uh, and that he would be able to message and do all the things that were necessary to create the culture of success. Uh, But he's probably one of a very small few people that could do that. And because of all his baggage, I don't even know if he was a serious consider consideration. Right. Very true. Well, we'll see where we come down on the coaching hire uh, next week, uh, what news we have to share. Um, In terms of the national side of college football, um, there were a lot of interesting games this week. Uh, I kind of called it a close call weekend uh, because all all of the top four had uh, were losing their games at a certain point, uh, but managed to hold on for the W. Although some top teams weren't able to do that, so we'll talk about those. For example, um, there was uh, Ohio State versus uh, Maryland, uh, which Ohio State ended up winning uh, forty-three to thirty. But truthfully, the final score was more like thirty-six to thirty because there was a scoop and score at the very end where Maryland fumbled it. And OSU got a free touchdown, basically. Um, but uh, Maryland was able to uh, drive it down on. 
Ohio State a lot. Uh, they made their defense look very mortal, I would say. I would agree 100%, Alex. So that's a good summary. And, and, uh, and, and a little shocking, frankly, the way Maryland was able to move that football against them. And in critical situations, it's one thing to have them move it early in the game. But when, when you've had plenty of time for that defense to adjust and then they're still moving that football the way they did, that's got to be concerning if you're an Ohio State fan. That, that was not indicative of a national championship caliber football team. Yeah. And then this, you actually kind of predicted this one a bit because you were talking about Illinois and how they had so strangely, you know, kind of uh, lost their past few games after controlling the Big Ten West for most of the season. Then you said, uh, oh, but just watch when they play Michigan super close next week. Well, and that's what ended up happening. Uh, Michigan ended up winning 19 to 17, uh, but they had to score uh, four field goals in order to do it. Right. Well, and 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 there was a lot of home cooking in that in that game too, and 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 of course the or not of course, but interestingly, uh, Illinois' coach has been uh, unusually verbose, and I'm sure he's getting fined or penalized for the his complaints. He even went to Twitter with video uh, uh, of some of the plays. There was a there was a critical catch in that game uh, that converted a third down. For Michigan, uh, it was a fairly long play. I'm going to say 20 plus yards. Uh, uh, that was clearly a uh, not a catch. The the you know there is video evidence that shows that the ball kind of went through the guy's hands and he was on on his elbows and and hit the ground and in the possession. And uh, they reviewed it even and they still gave him the catch. And then and then on the on the critical fourth down play. Uh, there were, it was a clear pick play. Uh, now the, fr- frankly, the, the, you could find pick plays on almost every drive against most teams in NCAA division one, because those stupid refs allow that that's supposed to be illegal, but it's, it's allowed way too much. And I wish they would tighten up the interpretation on that rule because why even have it? If, if you're going to let people get away with it, it's, it's a, it's stupid. It's not football. If you're allowed to pick, it's just not. And yet they allowed it to happen, and there was an obvious one in the in the Michigan game, uh, or in Michigan's benefit, and they let it happen. And so he was he was unusually verbose about that after the game. I see. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, we'll be predicting this game later, but we've got the the game, you know, the Michigan Ohio State rivalry, which is a extra big this year because they're both in the top four, both undefeated. Um, so I could see there being a bit of incentive on the Big Ten's part, you know, to keep that intact um, if they could. Uh, the highlights I watched of the game, you know, were more just the big plays, so I didn't get to see the moment to moment, you know, refereeing stuff. Um, one other significant thing though, about the game is that, um, Michigan's a really good running back Corum got hurt. And my understanding is he's still undecided for the Ohio state game. So That could prove to be a factor that, that could, but, but, uh, uh, I have a video sent to me by our, our, our friend, uh, Brian, uh, in Traverse city, uh, of him distributing uh, Turkey uh, to, uh, at, uh, at risk and, and, uh, you know, impoverished families, uh, around the Ann Arbor, Detroit area, uh, just, uh, yesterday, uh, where he was moving around and no limp, no nothing. So 
hopefully that's an indication that he's he's ready to go. And they he he did try to play in the second half a little bit, uh, but you could tell he was favoring that one leg. He will definitely not be a hundred percent, but the question is, uh, will he be able to recover enough from that? I I think what he has more than anything is he he, he just has a, a significant bruise on that leg um, uh, because of. I don't think there's any inst- instability issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll have to keep an eye on all that. Um, another big one that we actually predicted was here in Southern California, uh, USC versus UCLA. Uh, I predicted that USC would win uh, 31 21, while you predicted uh, 35 24. Uh, and I suppose we should have known better and ended up being a, a big scoring pack 12 game where USC won uh, 48 to 45. Um, interestingly, um, USC, uh, missed two very makeable field goals in the game, uh, but then also made two themselves while USA, uh, UCLA lost the turnover battle, uh, four to one. Uh, so the fact that UCLA had three more turnovers than USC, uh, and still only lost by three, uh, goes to show how good they were in that game, I think. Right. I felt like UCLA was, a, UCLA was the better team for the vast majority of that game. And uh, uh, USC kind of got lucky to win it, frankly. Uh, and, um, you know, UCLA's defense is pretty good, but they just, I don't know. I, I can't explain it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think I think it was one of those things where UCLA was having um, – some real success, you know, earlier on in the game and then later in the game, right. They're getting tired and USC makes some adjustments. And so they were able to score a lot in the fourth quarter when it really mattered to get the W. Right. I, I, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. And, uh, you know, that's where, uh, Lincoln Riley and his staff have got to get a little credit for, for kind of hanging in there. And it's kind of one of those examples of, you know, it's a 60 minute game, baby. And you better stick in it and in Nebraska the same way if if their players could have figured out a way to suck it up and have the strength and fortitude and and you know commitment to fight on that offensive and defensive line just a little bit longer to get one more first down to get to stop them from getting a first down here or there you know that's all we needed and we we win that football game at Nebraska so it's the same thing uh it just in a very on the opposite into the pendulum uh, with with a high scoring, uh, you know, game. Same same thing. It's still football. Yep. And another big game in the Pac-12 was Oregon versus Utah. Uh, I predicted actually that Utah would win uh, 38-35, while you predicted that Oregon would win 28-21, uh, and ended up being even lower scoring than that of uh, 20 to 17 with Oregon barely pulling it out. Um, I did not actually watch the recap for that one. Were you following that game? Um, we did not No, we were watching since we were out here in the East, we were watching, you know, where we were, uh, mostly sec games, but we did not get to see that one. Uh, and I don't even know, maybe it was a late, late game, but if it was, then I was in no, no position to watch that game. So, okay. Well, good on Oregon for, uh, holding out there. Utah was actually ranked above them. It was 10 versus 12. Uh, though I think most would still perceive Oregon as the more talented team. Now, as a as a Nebraska fan, here's a little, here's a little caveat for you. There are two defensive tackles that left the Nebraska program this summer, uh, transferred from Nebraska to 
Oregon, uh, following our defensive line coach who had left Nebraska to to take a job at Oregon, and they happen to be the starters now on Oregon's defense. So imagine what Nebraska's defensive line might be like if it had two guys that at least were providing depth, if not flat out the starters at Nebraska. Mm-hmm. So there's an example of the impact of the of the portal right there, an Oregon team that's now looking at you know a Pac-12 championship with two guys that might very well have been starters for our defensive line. Yep, yep, that is uh, <laughs> that does make you rub your head there a little bit. Um, and th- this was a very interesting game. Uh, maybe the most exciting game of the week was uh, Baylor versus TCU. Uh, which TCU ended up winning uh, 29 to 28 and keeping their undefeated streak yeah. alive. Um, Baylor uh, had a missed field goal and had an interception in the end zone. Um, so, uh, you know, they had, they definitely left some points on the board, but then TCU themselves made a mistake and dinked a PAT off the uprights, uh, which basically meant that then the next time they scored, they went for two point conversion to try to, get it back to even uh, and they missed the two point conversion. So then they needed a field goal basically at the end of the game to get that one point win. Um, And of course they did get it. Uh, But uh, that's one where Dave Aranda, I think has to be, you know, a bit disappointed that they weren't able to pull that out. Absolutely. Again, they played really, really well and probably deserved to win the game. Frankly, we're the better team on the day. But, you know, credit TCU a great deal. A fabulous special teams. Final play of the game, they got uh, – oh, That's right. They had no they time. They had no clock, you know, no, no, no way to stop the clock, and they rushed. They had to get the entire uh, kicking unit out on the field and set and then kick a field goal in, in about, you know, I'm going to say 14 seconds or something like that. It was, it was really impressive to watch them execute – that process. Now, what's interesting is, is that in hindsight now, of course, uh, it's hindsight, uh, when you have that mass substitution like that, the defense has the right to substitute as well. And if uh, Dave Aranda had been able to anticipate this circumstance a little bit better, he might have been able to say, hey, I have a right to substitute as well. And he could have allowed for a mass substitution of his team and if that was happening while the clock was running, because there's it's a running clock, it wasn't. Uh, there was no reason for that clock to stop. He could have very easily justified uh, the changeover, and and maybe consumed uh, enough s- seconds off of there to keep them from being able to kick that extra point or that ex- that field goal. Yep. But but you know that's a, that's a really complicated, you know, nuanced thing. But it's certainly something that could have happened. Yep, that's true. And I, I'm try- I don't remember the exact game. I want to say it was an LSU game, um, but there was a big game from earlier in this year where the defense was doing basically exactly what you said, where they were doing their own substitutions, you know, to match what the offense was doing. And the ref was out there, you know, stopping the center from snapping it. Right. And because yeah. the offense did it kind of late, it was really getting to the point where they run out the clock. And I think the coach had to call a timeout once. And he was like yelling at the refs, like what's going on and da, 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 you know, so it was a real factor in that game. Absolutely. And the fact is, is that they didn't have any timeouts left. TCU yep. didn't. 
Mm-hmm. So, so they, uh, the, 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 the clock would have just simply run out, but you're, you're running the risk of the ref saying, Nope, you guys should have already been on the field. And, uh, so now if they had gone ahead and let them run the play, uh, and let's say for the sake of argument that the, the field goal kicker misses it, but now you're called for having, uh, too many men on the field because you're in that exchange right between uh, players um, and uh, and they get another try with a five yard penalty to get them five yards closer. Right. Right. Which, and now with the clock stop. So you, you run the risk of how the refs are going to interpret that circumstance. But generally speaking, uh, if, if they do a mass substitution of, you know, let's say they substituted, you know, eight of the 11 players when they brought their field goal unit out, then that defense, has the right to substitute an equally large number and there has to be a reasonable amount of time allowed for them to do that substitution right mm-hmm. i mean it's very unique obviously but that's something that coaches are probably going to have to review and film over the over the off season and people are going to figure out how to take advantage of that so that that doesn't happen to them in the future mm-hmm yeah. Um, and then there was uh, Georgia played against Kentucky and of the top four teams, I would say their uh, close match was the least close because it was 16 to nothing. You know, Georgia's defense was just totally stonewalling Kentucky. Uh, and then Georgia actually went for it on like fourth and one at the goal line, um, which would have made it, I guess, uh 23 to nothing, right? It kind of put the game away, but uh, right. Kentucky stopped them. And then Kentucky scored uh, and they went for a two point conversion, didn't get it because they were trying, you know, if they could have scored eight and eight, then they would have tied it, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, right. that one touchdown was able to put them back in the game, right? And still make it close. Um, so it goes to show that uh, Georgia's got a great defense, but their offense has some problems and like their quarterback, uh, Bennett or whatever his name is uh, threw a pretty bad pick in that game too. Yes, he did. And you know, he's, he's not your quintessential, you know, NFL quarterback, right? He seems to be kind of a smallish little, little on the smaller side. He's athletic. He's competitive. uh, He's a gamer, but he's not a superstar. Uh, uh, But they have so much talent around them and they usually rely on that dominance in their running game. And then their defense being just, you know, phenomenal that, uh, that's all they need to win every game they play, but they were exposed for having, they don't have the full package off on offense. Yep. Very true. Uh, and then this was perhaps the most surprising game of the weekend, uh, which was number five, Tennessee playing against, uh, South Carolina, who I think had like a six and four record and, uh, South Carolina managed to win 63 to 38, uh, I watched the recap of that game, um, and it wasn't necessarily one where, like, uh, you know, uh, Tennessee made some, you know, huge mistakes, right? They had one turnover, while South Carolina had none. Um, but, you know, look at the stats. Tennessee had uh, 507 yards, while South Carolina had uh, 606. Um, you know, so it was kind of even in some of those regards, but South Carolina had almost 40 minutes of time of possession to Tennessee's 20. And it goes to show you that Tennessee was getting some yards, you know, driving the ball, but then not able to score points. Right. And South Carolina was just able to score them at will. Basically. I mean, their offense just got so many big plays. 
Yeah, that that's that's amazing, and probably the biggest surprise, like you say, of the weekend is I I, I don't know how the team that I watched Tennessee, Tennessee uh, beat Alabama, and how uh, that that quarterback they had was just so athletic, and it just seemed like they had it going, and uh, and for them to lose, to, uh, just hard to comprehend. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, and we're recording this here on a Tuesday, which is before the uh, college football rankings come out. But uh, I feel good in predicting that uh, the top four will remain the same because basically all of them uh, had some uh, close games, you know, where they were trailing at certain points, but all of them won. Um, so I think they'll remain the same. Uh, the interesting one is Tennessee, right, who was uh, a one-loss team and ranked fifth. Now they will drop down. And then so number six was LSU, a two-loss team, and number seven was USC. Now LSU won this weekend, but they played against the UAB. You know, this is the gimme week for the SEC, right? Um, so whereas USC played a, a 17th-ranked UCLA game, right, and won. So I think that that will be enough for USC to jump over LSU into that fifth spot. Um, so my guess is that if... Uh, things kind of go as predicted, you know, and uh, the teams that are favored in the conference championship games win, then our final four will probably be something like Georgia, Ohio State, TCU, and USC for the playoff this year. Right. But think about this. USC damn near lost, right? That's true. I mean, all of these guys, and, and not just the top four, right? So, <laughs> I mean, uh, what happens if... Uh, Michigan Ohio State play to a very very closely competitive game and Michigan wins by three. Where does Ohio State go? Uh, do do they drop? Does Ohio State, who's currently ranked second, do they drop behind a one loss USC team who won the Pac twelve, or or do they get plopped back, back down? Um, in uh, the fourth position, right? No, no. that's uh, true. So, because Ohio State would only have a loss, and USC lost to an unranked Utah team, and Ohio State's only loss would be to probably a then number two or three Michigan team. You know, in uh, at the end of the year. So, is there a recency bias that punishes Ohio State? Or do, does does that committee look at the body of work? And this gets back to the whole issue of how important is being conference champion? Where what 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 level of magnitude do you give to the conference championship? Because they have proven in the past to ignore that, in my opinion, in in large degree. See, now what right. happens this year when it when it's now an issue for the Big Ten uh, versus the USC and the Pac-12. I think because it's USC, USC would get the nod. Well, if if instead of USC, it was you know Arizona State or some other Pac-12 school that was not a historic, um, you know, power, I think they probably go Ohio State. Well, so I just looked up USC's schedule. Um, so you're right; they did lose to Utah, but at the time, Utah was ranked 14th in the country, and they only lost by one point. 
Um, so I think with that, if, uh, you know, Ohio State loses to Michigan by three points, like you say, uh, then if USC wins the Pac-12, if they win their conference championship game, I think USC is still in there. The more interesting discussion, I think, would be if USC lost that conference championship game to whoever else it is. So now you have a two-loss Pac-12 champion. And now do you put them in over a one-loss Ohio State? And I think that's where Ohio State could get the nod. That'd be my prediction. Oh, I I, I, I would be shocked if that wasn't the case. I think I think a lot of people would go crazy if, if a one-loss Ohio State, who lost barely, or Michigan, Ohio State or Michigan, who lost barely to, you know, in a, in a highly competitive, well, well-played game. Let's just make that assumption. Um, you know, if it's a blowout one way or the other, then the loser of that blowout is gone, right? They're out. But, but if it's competitive, um, and then, and like you say, then there was an upset or there's no other one loss teams available, then it would seem like you'd almost have to still keep the loser of that Michigan Ohio state game in the four. Mm -hmm. That's what they did with Alabama twice. It's true. Yep. Well, like you say, it's an interesting opportunity to, See if they really do have that SEC bias or whatever. Um, speaking right. of that game, of course, the big Michigan-Ohio State game is happening this weekend. It's uh, at Ohio State. Um, and Michigan was able to win for the first time in a long time last year. Um, so now there's, I think, added motivation on the part of Ohio State to try to take it back in their own home stadium. Uh, both teams you know, showed some vulnerabilities this weekend. Um, but you know, both still undefeated going into it. Uh, so what's your prediction? Who's going to win? Wow. You know, because of injuries to key players on both sides, I I really would want to know, uh, and would prefer to make this decision on Friday night after I know (laughs) what quorum status is and what Stroud status is for Ohio state. Just how healthy are they? Too bad. You have to predict now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, my point being that I think that's critical to what the outcome is going to be. But, you know, I just, I, I'm going to say that in my observation of Ohio State, I am not sure that if, if, if Michigan calls the right kind of game and recognizes that they have, uh, they have a real advantage over Ohio State in terms of their their running game, right? Their offensive dominance that they can establish and, and control the clock and the time time of possession, that sort of stuff. I think if Michigan plays that card right and Corum is healthy or reasonably so, then I think Michigan wins this game, even though it's at Ohio State. It's it's you know, it's at their stadium and everything. That's usually an advantage, obviously, for the home team, but because I just think um, Ohio State's defense has shown itself to be quite ordinary for a number of games this season. Uh, and I think Michigan's defense is for real. I mean, they're, they're ranked like number one or two in the country, and I think that's an, an earned ranking. They're a pretty salty defense. So, um, but we'll see. We'll see uh, what happens. Uh, but I'm, so I'm going to predict a Michigan victory, but it's going to be close. It's going to be a, you know, nail biter get into the fourth quarter i think ohio state being at home and and the higher ranked team you know has just a little bit more uh, uh pucker or stress on them and they uh, and you know one little mistake here or there makes the difference 
And because of the control of the line of scrimmage is advantage Michigan, Michigan wins it. So I'm going to say it's going to be like 24-21 Michigan. Okay, interesting. Uh, I'm going to go the other way, even though as a you know someone from Michigan, I want Michigan to win. Um, but I think Ohio State has the advantage of playing at home, wanting revenge from last year. And also um, in that game against Maryland, what I saw was that uh, Maryland was getting a lot of uh, passes on uh, Ohio State's defense. Uh, not so much dominance in the running game, which is more of Michigan's forte this year. Um, so I think that you know, Ohio State may kind of force Michigan to pass it more than they want to, uh, and they may be exposed there. And also Michigan's inability to, you know, they only got one touchdown against Illinois' defense, which Illinois has a good defense, don't get me wrong. Uh, but I think they, I'm more concerned about their offensive capabilities, especially if it gets down to a close fourth quarter battle, right, versus uh, Ohio State, um, who has their great quarterback, you know, who can really fling it around there if he he needs to and things like that. Um, so I think it'll be close, uh, but I think Ohio State will pull it out in a bit of a higher scoring game. Uh, so I'll say uh, 38 uh, Ohio State, uh, or let's say, let's say 31 Ohio State to uh, Michigan uh, 24. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Uh, Well, uh, that would be a lot of points for Michigan's defense to give up. So that must mean the offense is giving up some points, which is certainly possible. Michigan's, you're right. Michigan's offense has looked very inept at times and their, their quarterback is simply not able to, to consistently connect on deep balls. Now, one of my reasons for my optimism is that I, I got some, some scoop that uh, they've really struggled with some injuries along there uh, within their tight end group. And they had some great tight ends to begin the season and Michigan lost one for the season. And I think two others to injury at different times. And so they were down to like their fourth team tight end, fourth and 15 tight ends. And I think tight end is really important to Michigan's offense because it's so run based. And if they get a couple of those guys back and I'm, I have indications that they will, um, if, if, if they end up getting those guys back, I think the tight end plays a big role for Michigan in this game, and that's what makes the difference. All right. The inside knowledge. You like to hear it. Um, there you go. Last thing we'll talk about here is, of course, Nebraska's last game, which is against Iowa. Um, they played against Minnesota this past week in a close game, which they won 13-10. Uh, to 10. Uh, Frankly, uh, that's another game where Minnesota may have been the better team on that day. Um, but they uh, had a late fumble in the game uh, and through an interception. Um, so Iowa's, uh, you know, uh, good uh, stats on turnovers and they had Iowa had some good special teams plays as well. Um, so those areas kind of saved them. Uh, I noticed in particular that Iowa had two muff snaps in the game where, you know, they just lost a bunch of yards on a bad snap, which I've seen more of in some of these more recent games, even in our game, right? I think just because of the cold, right? It's affecting these long snappers. Um, But I would say, you know, my opinion going to the Iowa game is similar to the Wisconsin game in that I think we are going to lose, um, but that, uh, you know, their offense isn't great and our defense, I think we'll be able to slow them down. So the real key will be, uh, can Casey Thompson and the offense uh, get some real drives going against their very good defense? 
Okay, so what's your score then, big fella? All right, well, uh, I'm going to say that we lose, uh, but that it will be a close game once again. Uh, so let's say it'll be a pretty defensive battle uh, where uh, Iowa wins, um, let's say, 17 to uh, 10, Nebraska. Okay. I'm going to just jump to the score, and I'm going to flip the script. Nebraska wins 21-17. <laughs> what, and, what, what have you uh, done with my dad? Who is this man? <laughs> no, here's what I'm thinking. <laughs> I, I got nothing to lose, damn it. Uh, <laughs> uh, no credibility. Here's my thinking. <laughs> I think exactly. My credibility's all gone. Um, and uh, my, uh, my thought is that Casey Thompson is going to play well. Okay. He's another week removed from, you know, really having, uh, struggles with his hand. Um, and, um, I'm hopeful that, the the temperatures will be moderated a little bit and maybe it won't be quite as windy in Iowa city as it is, as it was in Lincoln last week. I think our defense, um, comes to play. And I think Iowa's offense is truly inept. And I just, I, I see some individual players. I mean, we, we have some players on defense that are young that are starting to find their way. And, um, and I just, uh, you know, we just need a couple of big plays, right? We need some big plays that get us an early lead. And then, and then, and then we're going to hang on at the end. I, I I'm going to tell you, I think, I think we might go out to a 14, 17 point lead and then they will come back with a, a vengeance and then it'll end up being a, a, a super tight game, uh, you know, going into the last play and, uh, but they're going to come up a little short cause their offense isn't quite going to be able to get it done. And our defense is going to find a stop or something. And our kids go out having spoiled Iowa's season and, and it's, it's pandemonium in Husker land. Right. And then we get a new coach. Right. Well, right. I mean, at this point it's <laughs> a difference of three wins versus four. So like you say, not, not a whole lot to play for there aside from pride and yeah, being able to say, Hey, we upset Iowa. Cause if Iowa wins and Purdue wins who Purdue is playing Indiana this weekend, uh, Iowa wins the head to head with Purdue. So they basically are guaranteed to go to the big 10 championship game. But if we beat Iowa and Purdue wins, then they go. So, uh, correct. There you go. Exactly. And I want no, I want badly for, for Nebraska to spoil Iowa's Big Ten West Championship. <laughs> All right. So there you go. It's my, it, you know, I'm always the pessimist. Now it doesn't matter. Right? <laughs> that Mickey and the staff, they throw caution to the wind and they do anything to win that football game. I don't give a crap what they do, but they just find a way mm-hmm. and they get it done. Yep. Yep. Well, that kind of reminds me. I remember listening to the on the radio in this Wisconsin game. There was a point where we were at like around midfield, and it was like a fourth and one or fourth and two, and Mickey decided to punt it uh, instead of uh, uh, going for it. You know, and the the guys on the radio were a bit iffy on like eh, maybe that was right, maybe that was wrong, but our defense is playing well. And then it was on that drive that the defense got the interception and then we got the ball even further in Iowa's territory and we were able yep. to score, right? So that's one where uh Mickey right. playing it a little more cautiously uh worked in his favor. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, st- you know, that's why those you know, that's why the book, so to speak, 
exists. There is history that says if you do this more often than not, it's not going to go well. If you do this more often than not, it's going to lead to you either having another opportunity or it's going to go well. So, so that's why those standard, you know, decisions are, are kind of etched in stone, but you got to recognize when the opportunity presents itself. And for Nebraska, I think given that we have been so inconsistent on offense, I hope that Mickey and uh, Whipple are prepared to be very aggressive with their offensive play calling and that on defense, we're willing to accept the fact that we should be able to line up with these uh, wide receivers with Iowa. The thing that we're going to have to avoid is Iowa is, is incredibly good, and they've been just horribly efficient at this against Nebraska over the last decade, is play-action pass, counter plays with a little flip out to a tight end or a delayed receiver across, you know, the, across the field crossing routes slow developing plays, but because of our inability to stop their offensive line, <clears throat> we overload on the run, and then that tight end is running wide open down the field or a wide receiver catches a uncontested pass for uh, uh, you know eight yards when they need six on a, a critical third down. Right. Um, and that's the play that will just kill us, will be our, our undoing if we allow it. But I just have a feeling that coach Bush has instilled an aggressiveness and a, and a confidence about going man to man in some of those situations and then locking in on it and making them make the perfect pass, making them throw, you know, that perfect ball when they expect that guy to be open all of a sudden, Nope, there's a guy, you know, all over him and they either have to throw it out of bounds or we get a sack or something. And I'm just hoping that this is the game where that pl that plays off, uh, and we and uh, we end up with a victory. All right. Well, hopefully we're here in a week's time talking about Nebraska's new coach and how he played spoiler with Iowa. Uh, so that's what we're hoping for. But uh, <laughs> there you go. Hope all of you out there enjoy this final week in the regular season of college football. Uh, if you enjoyed listening to the podcast, you can reach out to us at huskerpeat13 at gmail.com. You can also search and find us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Leave us a reading review there. We always love hearing from the fans. Uh, we'll read your comments out here on the air. So thank you for listening to this episode, and thank you, Dad, for joining me. And until next time, go Big Red. Go Big Red. Go Big Red.